Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. All right, so the, the plan originally was we were going to look at chapters 27, 28, and 29 uh, of 1 Samuel. But then as I was been working on the sermon and thinking through these passages, these chapters in particular are, are kind of braided together uh, in... in really kind of an inseparable way. So to, to kind of understand one part and see one part, you have to look at the other parts and, and vice versa. And so I just decided that we're going to look at chapters 27 through 31. We're going to wrap up our study of 1 Samuel this morning. So that's going to take us up through the death of Saul. Now, the reality is you don't get David's response to that until the first couple chapters of 2 Samuel. So we're still somewhat making an artificial break. But there, there's some things that I want us to see about David, about Saul, about life, uh, about how we think about each other and how we think about God and and how God is at work in our life. But it kind of requires us to look at this whole story. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read just chapter 27 to kind of set the stage for what we're going to be looking at. We're not going to read 27 through 31. I'm going to read just 27 and trust that that if y'all want to read it, then uh, that you'll do that when you get home, or or if I get boring, you can read through it this morning. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. 1 Samuel 27. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land of old, from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but he would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jerem." Jeremelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. Father, I ask that you would add your blessing to this reading of your word. That by your spirit, you would strengthen me to preach and to proclaim Christ clearly. Give us ears to hear. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, 
there's a few different ways that you can read texts like this. You, you can read them critically where, where you read them and you see what, what seem like kind of discontinuities, dis, you know, incongruities in the text. And you go, okay, well, these must just be from different sources that somebody put together and, and we don't need to try to read it as having a singular point, blah, blah, blah. You, you can approach it that way, not denying that sources were used. They, they were. The Bible's clear about that. That's not a big deal. But it was put together for a particular reason. Another way you can read uh, books like this is, is kind of idealistically, where you, you kind of say, okay, it's about David. David was a man after God's own heart. And so I'm going to read this as David is the hero. David's the king. He's the true king of Israel. And, you know, he can't have done anything bad. And, and you kind of push everything through that grid. And you explain some incongruities away, saying, well, there, there must be some theological explanation that we just don't understand. That's another way that, that it's often read. A third way that you can read these texts is realistically. You can, you can read them and go, huh, David seems like a real problem here, but he seems really awesome here. He, he seems to get some things right here, but he seems really problematic over here. Saul seems really problematic here, but here he is inquiring of God. And, and I think that realistic way of reading the text is the right way. Because here's the thing. Everybody in these stories, except Jesus, is a sinful human just like you and I. And so it does us no good to kind of force everybody through just a single lens. And so that's what I want us to see this morning as we think about these closing chapters of 1 Samuel. So here's how we're going to kind of approach this, because it's a big section. So I'm going to kind of set the story in its context and, and kind of rehearse the story with a few comments along the way. And then I'm going to draw out some implications that I want us to see particularly. So this isn't going to be like a, a you know, expository sermon in the sense that I'm like pulling every little piece apart. I want us to see kind of thematically what's going on and how that fits in the story of, of the rest of the Bible. Okay, so, so, so a couple settings to keep in mind, particularly about David. First of all, if we go back just one chapter, we see David's confidence in God. As, as he refuses to kill Saul because he doesn't want to lift his hand against the Lord's anointed, and he says this. This is his, his confidence in, in the Lord handling his problems for him. He says in 26.10, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. That's what's going to David's like, look, God's got this. God's going to handle this. I don't have to handle this on my own. If you go back another chapter, 1 Samuel 25, you see that, that, that David has his calling confirmed by others. Uh, Abigail, Nabal's widow. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord, speaking to David, a sure house. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. You're, you're the king. You're doing it. Even we're going to see in this chapter, as we saw in previous chapters, the Philistines recognize that. This is David. Saul killed his thousands. David is ten thousand. I mean, all through the book of Samuel, people are recognizing. He has Samuel proclaimed him. You are the true king of Israel. And he's pretty confident in that most of the time. But then sometimes he's not. And that's where we find ourselves here at the beginning of this story. Notice the, the, the first few verses of chapter 27. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. 
There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Notice what David did just there. He turned around and went inside himself and considered his whole life from there. He doesn't see God. He's not inquiring of the Lord. He says in his heart, Saul's going to kill me someday. And so there's, the best I can do is run and hide. That's the best I can do with my life. Run and hide. And, and you read that and you go, what happened? You were just standing over him, refusing to lift your hand against the Lord's order, so confident God will handle him. He swears he won't try to kill you. And your response is, go inside, look around in there, and think, he's going to kill me. I'm done. The best I can do is hide. I love this story. I absolutely love it. And here's why. It's brutally honest. It's brutally honest about the reality of life, isn't it? We can that quickly go from a bold, fabulous faith to a fainting faith, can't we? Just that quick. We can go from, I trust God. He's going to see me through this. He's, going to, he, he, he's got me. He's in control of everything. His providence rules to, I've got to go hide because this guy is going to kill me. And the best I can do is just turn in on myself and, and, and protect myself and leave behind what God has promised me. It's so honest. And so that's what David does. That's what we just read. He goes back to Philistine, back to Achish, who had kicked him out once before. And he's like, look, just let me live off in the country. I'll, I'll, you know, so he gives him Ziklag, this town, a little bit south and, and east of, of where Gath is. And David goes and lives. And from there, here's what he does. Here's his plan to support himself. He goes out and slaughters people and takes their stuff. I mean, that's a bivocational, you know, I mean, that's one way to approach it, I suppose. You know, we just go take out Valonia one week, Greenbrier, you know, whatever, you know, just take all their stuff, make sure, no, and here's what David, and it tells us in the text, this is what he does. He leaves no one alive, not because, see, we would be, t- here's what we do. When we read this kind of idealistically, we go, oh, here's what David's doing. Remember, Saul's in the predicament he's in because he left people alive when God sent him to the Amalekites. And if we read this idealistically, we go, that's what David's doing. He's not doing what Saul did. But the text tells us something different if we read it realistically. This is what the text tells us he does. The text tells us he did this. He would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell us, tell about us and say, so David has done. See, David wasn't being obedient to God to go take out all the enemies of God. That's a, he actually was not being a good king here. He, he was going and getting what he needed for his crew to live. He had a whole bunch of people with him. And then he was coming back to Achish. And he's like, oh, man, where'd you get all this stuff? And David's like, oh, I killed some Israelites. 
All those places that he says he, that he raided, the Negev of Judah, that's the, Negev is like the south, basically. The southern part of Judah, southern part of the Jeremelites, southern part of the Kenah, these are all Israelites. David's like, oh, don't worry about it. I killed some Hebrew people, took their stuff. No biggie. Less for you to worry about. He's just lying, just bald-faced lying. And, and it tells us the reason he was killing everybody wasn't out of obedience to Yahweh, wasn't establishing the land, wasn't delivering people. It was to protect himself. If I leave anybody alive, if I leave anyone alive, they're going to get away, and, it's going to, and the word's going to get back to Achish, and I'm done. David, the king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, right? And then this is what we do. We turn in on ourselves and then anything goes when we, when we start acting in self-protection and self-promotion rather than trusting God. The story changes, chapter 28, one of the wildest, funnest, would love to camp out on chapter 28 for a while because a witch shows up. Real one, right? Not a Halloween witch, real deal. Battle with the Philistines is starting again. Saul's still the acting king, though he's not the true king, and, 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 and he doesn't know what to do. He calls on God. He, it says he inquires of the Lord. Good for him. That's what he should have been doing all along. The problem is he's inquiring of the Lord of how to be king, but he's not king anymore, so God doesn't answer him. God, how do I be king? The answer, the silent answer is you don't. You're not the king. You don't be king. Saul, Saul's got to figure something out. So he had kicked all the mediums and, and necromancers, like the people that, that conjure up the dead. He'd kicked them all out of the land. But he's like, somebody go find me somebody. And they're like, hey, there's a witch, a ghost wife at Endor. She can help you. And here's what happens. He disguises himself because if the king who kicked all of you out shows up and is like, hey, do this thing. Like, you're going to be like, uh, this is clearly a trap. 100% a trap. Like, I remember when I was in college, I used to go down on Dixon Street in Fable and play in drum circles. It's what I did. And one day, you know, in drum circles, there are a certain type of people that hang out there, right? And one day a cop showed up and he was like, hey, I'm not trying to get anybody in trouble. Does anybody know like anyone like, that's selling? Come on. Give me a, like, that, That's the scene here, right? That's the scene. And so Saul disguises himself. Not doing it. And, and the, the witch is like, no, no, the king has already said this. Like, I'm not, I'm not, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not selling people out. Give me a break. So I was like, no, it's going to be fine. I promise no harm will come to you. I need you to conjure somebody for me. And then, don't know what to do with this. Just be going to be real honest. She does. And it works. And Samuel shows up. And they have a conversation. And she freaks out because when the shadow of Samuel shows up, she's like, uh-oh, you're Saul, aren't you? And he's like, yes, but it's going to be okay. So just file that away. Wherever you need to in your theological categories as something that actually happened in the Bible. Because it did. Because it did. Now, the message from Samuel is not great. He, he says, hey, remember the Amalekites? You didn't kill them all. That's what, you're not going to be king. In fact, in this battle that you're going into, that you're looking for help in, you're going to die. You're going to be killed, Saul. 
But, but my favorite part of this part of the story is when, Saul, uh, when Samuel first shows up, he's so cranky. <laughs> he's cranky. This is what he says. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And I feel like that's the most honest thing ever. Because if for some reason I pass on before y'all and I'm in glory and y'all are like, I wish I knew what the pastor would say. And you, I am not going to show up happy. I feel like that's the most, like if you've lived the life, if you've been through it, Samuel's like, you again. And I just, I just love, even though I don't know where to put all the pieces, I love the honesty, the humanity of what's going on here. So the story continues. The Philistines kind of are like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're going to fight the Israelites. Our king is saying David can come with us. This is chapter 29. David can come with us. But I've got this like jingle stuck in my head. Saul is shut down his thousands. David is ten thousands. Like, and, and just like earlier, they're like, king, hey, this is a bad idea. There's no way David, who has smoked us before and has smoked all kinds of other, there's no way we should be taking him into battle against the Israelites that he's actually the rightful king of and the champion of and the hero of. This makes no sense whatsoever. Achish reluctantly agrees with him. But this is what he says to David. As the Lord lives, you have been honest. No, he hasn't. And to me, it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I found nothing wrong in you because he's killed everybody. He's destroyed the evidence. From day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lord's do not approve of you. So go back. And so David does. And there's this glorious providence here. Because remember what we talked about just a couple weeks ago. The king's job is not to condemn or kill the people of God. It's to deliver them from his enemies. But here David in his fear is hiding with his enemies who are now at war with the people of God and has agreed to go to war with them. How does he get out of this? The answer is God's providence without ever being mentioned, kind of like in the book of Esther, where the name of God is never mentioned in the entire book. It's, it hasn't been mentioned in these chapters yet either. As far as David inquiring of God, and, and it's on the lips of the Philistine. It's on the lips of Saul. But, but in David's story, he's not inquiring of God. But God works. And David gets dismissed from this battle in God's sovereign reign. Chapter 30, he gets back to Ziklag, and when he gets there, he finds, lo and behold, he's not the only one going around raiding people. That was a somewhat common thing. It was uncommon to kill everybody. That was David's own little, like, flourish, right? But it, wasn't, it, was, it was common to, for there to be raiding parties that went and stole each other's stuff, right? And he gets back and he finds that, like, all our stuff has been taken. And all of our wives. And all of our kids. And these Amalekites have gone. And, and here, the, the story's different now. Verse 6, 
David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord. All of a sudden, David's seeking God again. Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And God answers him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake them and shall surely rescue. And isn't that honest? Isn't that how quickly we go? I'm going to seek God. I'm going to freak directly out. I'm going to seek God. Isn't that a much more honest picture of life? Than, than trying to shoehorn everything into some idealistic perspective or just assuming like, oh, these stories are incongruous. Let's split them apart. No. David was real. A three-dimensional person. So he goes and he defeats the Amalekites. And, and then this is fascinating. You get down to verse 26. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends. The elders of Judah saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel and Ramoth, in the Negev of Jatir, in Aroer, in Siphamoth, in Eshemoah, in Rakal, in the cities of the Jeramalites, and in the cities of the... He gives all the stuff of the Amalekites. He gives presents to the people that earlier he told Achish he had been killing. It's the same groups of people. These were David's friends. Perhaps we can read into the text that he had like let them know what was going like, hey, I'm going to tell y'all, so y'all don't wander over here. Let them think you're all dead. And maybe this is the payment for that. We know David was willing to, you know, pay and be conniving in that way. We learned that with Nabal. But these are the same people. But here's what's fascinating about this story. You get this beautiful picture of Christ in, in distributing the riches to the people. Because when David comes back, he's got all these warriors. And some of the people had stayed back to watch the baggage and make sure stuff doesn't get raided again. David shows up with all the stuff and he just throws this party and pays everybody the same. And of course, there's some people that are like, no, no, no. We should not all be paid the same. We went to war. We risk our lives. They just hung out and made sure the baggage didn't go anywhere. And David says, no, no, no. That's not how this works at all. You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is, as his share is who goes down into battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. David's like, no, no, I'm the king. I distribute the riches. And everybody's in. Everybody's in. We're not, we're not creating us in them with the riches that the king distributes. It's Matthew 20, isn't it? Some people got to work early. Other people got called late. At the end of the day, everybody who was serving the master got paid the same. Because there's only one, there's only one thing that the master pays. And that's everything that we need. So, so we see this picture of, of David being this incredible type of Christ. This incredible Christ figure. But it's couched in this story where he's been utterly unchristlike. And then in chapter 31, we're back to Saul and the battle with the Philistines. And Saul, of course, is killed. He cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the temples. And they put his army in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body 
to the wall at Bethshan. In other words, what David had done to Goliath, took his armor and stuff to the temple, to the place of worship, and hung his head so that everybody could see it. That's what the Philistines now do to Saul. And so Saul is finally dead. So, so what are the implications that we draw out for, from this back and forth story? The, the first, and, and really the main one is this. The reality of life is faith and faithlessness. That's just the reality of life. Or, or we could say it this way. The reality of life is faith and fear. That's the reality of life. Shouldn't be. No, I'm not saying that's okay. I'm not saying faithlessness is okay. I'm not saying fear is okay. I'm saying that's the reality of life. That's the reality of Christians, isn't it? That's the reality of you and I, isn't it? David is not perfectly faithful, but he's also not perfectly faithless. See, we, we just can't shoehorn him into to one category or the other. He, he, he vacillates wildly. From I've got to protect myself. I've got to do this for me. I've, I've got to make sure I, I'm okay. To, to God, you are in control. And your providence rules. And I will trust you. It's just back and forth. This, this tension. This battle with, with flesh and spirit. This battle with, with, with trusting God. and not. David is a type of Christ, but he's, but he's not the Christ. He's not sinless. He's pictured in this story as a self-seeking murderer and, and as the king who gives the riches to the people in equity because they come from him and not their own work. Not their own work. So he's not perfectly faithful. He's not perfectly faithless. He's a type of Christ, but he's not the Christ. And, and here's, here's the thing. Here's where the problem comes in when we read these stories. The problem comes in with reading David's story when, when we try to read it through a single lens. That's where we get ourselves in trouble. Because then we either explain away immoral, unjust things in his life. Or we do like some scholars have done and said, there is nothing good in David. How could you ever see him as faithful? And, and we, we pigeonhole him into one side or the other. And here's the thing. This is the problem with how we read our own stories also. And how we read others' stories as well. Is we try to pigeonhole ourselves. We pick one lens Somebody gives us a label or we come up with a label. We pick one lens and we look at ourselves only through that lens. And guess what you can do? You can interpret every breath of your life through that lens if you want to. And maybe it's good. Maybe it's bad. But here's where it inevitably leads you. You either become self-righteous thinking like I'm so great or you end in despair because you're not getting an honest, actual look at, at your story, at what God's done in your life, at who you actually are. And that's what we do with David. And that's what we do with ourselves. And that's what we do with so many other people. 
We force them through a particular lens that, that we think interprets everything. We, we, we are so bad. We are so bad at believing two things at the same time. Why? Because it's hard. It's hard. This, this is the struggle that we have with politics. Right now, maybe always. You're either in this camp or you're in this camp. You can't mix. And, and, and we force everybody through those lenses. This is, this is the, the, the struggle we have in our marriages, isn't it? Well, we, we look at each other and we're like, oh, I'm going to read everything about you through this. This is the problem we have with our kids and with our parents. This is the problem we have with each other. Oh, you're this way. So I'm going to read everything about you through that. Oh, you did this. I'm going to read everything about you through that. And here's the thing. Unless the single lens that we're reading ourselves and others through is Jesus, it'll always lead us astray. It'll always lead us to exalting ourselves or whoever we're reading or despairing of ourselves or whoever we're reading. Unless the single lens that we're reading people through is Jesus and his providential reign, will always misread the story. Every time. And we see that here with David. We can't fit him through a single lens. He's wildly faithless and wildly faithful. He's utterly unchristlike, and a beautiful picture of the king giving freely the riches of God to the people of God. We just can't force him through a single lens. And we can't force ourselves through that either. This was Paul's point. That If you remember back when we went through 2 Corinthians just before this series, we got to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and we read this. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled the world, reconciled us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is Christ, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We, we don't regard anyone according to the flesh any longer. We don't read them through that lens. We don't read each other through that lens but through the lens of Christ. Does that mean that, that we can't deal with sin? Not at all. Does that mean that, that we don't need to, to examine ourselves? Not at all. Does that need that we, mean that we don't need to be honest about our failures and, and, and our hang-ups? And, and not at all. Not at all. Does that mean that we, we don't point people to their need for a Savior? Not at all. Not at all. But if we're not taking our stories through the lens of Jesus, we're getting them wrong. We're getting them wrong. It's that simple. 
We've got to read through the lens of Christ. He's the one who defines us. He's the one in whom we have life. He's the creator of all things. He's the one who sustains everything. He's the one who's providentially ruling over all things. Earlier, Brent read Romans 8, 18 through 39, the the last kind of half of of that that great chapter of Romans 8. And it's all about, it's all about how God is providentially at work in and through the finished work of Jesus Christ to bring about his purposes. See, when we read our lives, our stories, ourselves, each other, through the lens of Jesus and his purposes and his providential reign, it gives us a map for how to understand things. But when we try to read it any other way, we're, we're, we're utterless. No, rudderless. <laughs> we're utterless also. Man, you just run a good point sometimes. We're, we're rudderless in this life. Because it's... it's It's a lens that wasn't actually given to interpret and define us. But we try to fit everything through it. And everything's miscolored, and everything's misshapen, and nothing quite fits. But when we look through the lens of Christ, the one who came to set everything right, the pieces start to fall back into place. And we start to see the reality of redemption in each other's lives and the hope of the future in Christ in each other's lives. And we're able to be honest with ourselves and say, yeah, I really messed this up, but that doesn't define who I am. And I really got this right, but that doesn't define who I am. Christ does. His favor His choice of me, the Father's choice of me in Christ, defines who I am. David is just as unhinged in this story as Saul. The difference between the two is that God said, David, you're my king. You're the one I pick. And that's the story of the people of God. In the Old Testament, when you go into the land, don't think I chose you because you were so much better. You weren't. You were stiff-necked. You were smaller than everybody else. You were weak. I chose you because I love you. In the New Testament, Christ died for us at the right time while we were still sinners. So so what lens are we going to read ourselves through? What lens are we going to read the stories of the Bible through? It has to be Jesus. It has to be. That's why as we wrap up 1 Samuel this morning, looking at this big section of the story, our next move after Advent, really in Advent, is we're going to go back to the gospel and we're just going to spend as long as it takes looking at Jesus and understanding how to see ourselves through him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope of Christ. We thank you for these stories that that, that show us that we can't just pigeonhole each other or ourselves or, or really anyone. Because you're at work in ways that we don't understand. Even through pagan nations, you're at work. 
And so we don't have to pretend to be something that we're not to think that you're at work. We don't have to pretend to be some Christian nation that we're not to pretend that you're at work in us. We're free to be your people as you've called us with the hope of Jesus. And we're free to stop forcing ourselves through any lens but Christ. We're free to see ourselves as you see us in him. We're not good at it. And so we ask that your spirit would help us. Help us to do what we're free to do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of Scripture and theology.